0: Well, Genesis 49 tonight. Genesis 49, one chapter away from finishing the book. (laughs) Don't worry, we're just getting started. Genesis chapter 49. Now before we read this, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 21 tells us, By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on top of his staff. We're going to see Jacob in heaven. No doubt, no doubt in my mind whatsoever, for this man died in faith. And that's the way to go. It must have been faith because because there was no other way Israel could know the things that he is about to share in this chapter. No other possible way that he could have sat there on the edge of his bed, talking to his sons, blessing them, and speaking amazing prophecies you'll see tonight. Only by faith could somebody do this. And I think I mentioned last week that I wonder if Israel even realized what all he was saying, even understood some of the words coming out of his mouth as he began to bless his sons and saying just some odd things that his sons must have just been wondering, what's dad talking about? And I wonder if dad was wondering what he was talking about, but he had faith. The Hebrew writer tells us he believed what he was saying and as he was blessing these sons, he knew it wasn't from himself. He knew it was coming from God. And verse 1 tells us But Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves, that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Now there's an important phrase right off the bat in these first two verses. We looked at it last week. It's that phrase, in the days to come. Literally in the Hebrew, it says, at the end of days. At the end of days. He says, I will tell you what will befall you at the end of days. It's a phrase that's used 14 times in the Old Testament. And every single time rabbinical scholars agree, this phrase is prophetic. This phrase speaks of the last days of planet Earth. But before we go any further in our study tonight, before we take even another step... We need to understand something about Bible prophecy that is absolutely critical. Revelation 19, verse 10 tells us the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. When you study Bible prophecy, we do so to see Jesus. Old Testament prophecy, New Testament prophecy, wherever you're studying, whatever you find in the scriptures, it is about Jesus. He is the bottom line. He is the sum of the whole thing. He is the one who brings it all together, who makes sense out of all of it. He is because without Jesus there is no hope of salvation for either the Jew or the Gentile. He is it. Acts chapter 4 verse 20. Peter said, there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Not Jacob. Not Isaac. Not Abraham. None of the fathers. Not Moses. Not Elijah. Not you. Not me. For we don't save ourselves, no other name, but the name of Jesus. This is so important because as we open up and we look at this prophecy, do so with Jesus right back here in your mind. Look for Jesus in these words because he is here. Jacob is talking and will be talking about Jesus, we were driving here tonight. I got to apologize to my wife for my bad attitude. I knew as we're driving here, it's been a long couple of days, and I'm 40 now, so I'm real tired all the time. And and no, as we were driving here, I was a little cranky, a little frustrated. And um, and, you know, I knew I've learned enough in my 40 years to know this that when I'm frustrated, and especially when I'm heading to teach Bible study, I just need to get out of my own way. And so I put in this hymns tape that we had, the CD, kind of a modernized version of some hymns. And was listening to Ferris Lord Jesus. And it just, it just snaps you right where you need to be. It gets you right in line with Jesus. And as I listen to this, there's a chorus, a new chorus that added. We'll do this song sometime, uh, the new version. The chorus says, you are fairer still today. You are fairer still today. Precious Jesus Lord, you are adored as we worship you. You are fairer still. And I think about that. How many years ago the fairest Lord Jesus was written, and yet today he is fairer still than when those words were written. He is fairer still today than he was 2,000 years ago. He is fairer still today than he was when Jacob, when Israel prophesied about his coming. And we need to know that. Because without Jesus, we are doing nothing but having a little lecture on old history that means nothing. But Jesus brings it all together. Let's pray for a moment together and go further into this passage. Lord, Jesus, how amazing it is that we can come before you and pray. That we can seek you out tonight, Jesus. That as our Lord and our Savior, that you listen. That you are currently, right now, even as we pray, interceding for us before the Father in Heaven. That you are the one and only mediator between man and God. That we have our defense in you. That we have our salvation in you. Our redemption. Our restoration. And how aware we are, Father, that without Jesus, we would be hopeless. There is no other name given in heaven or on earth by which we must be saved. And so tonight, Lord, before we even ask for your blessing on this study, we praise the name of Jesus God it brings tears to my eyes to think about you as not only son of God but son of man how you left your glory and your wonder and your splendor in all eternity to come into time how you left your grandeur and became human flesh and as if that wasn't enough how you died at the hands of human flesh for our sins. All glory and honor and praise is yours, Jesus, and we give it to you. And we don't even feel worthy to lift up praise to you. But we are so grateful that we can. We praise you for your resurrection, and we praise you most of all, Jesus, that you are coming again. That your feet, we sense, Lord, are right at the door of heaven. Ready to come blasting back into this world, to pull out your church. And Lord, to execute judgment. But then, Father, to come back in a wonderful time of peace and prosperity. The peace that so eludes the United Nations and all of the nations today will come in the hands of Jesus. And oh, Jesus, what a day that will be. We look to you and we look forward to that. Jesus, tonight, as we in our that our human minds seek to understand the Scriptures. I pray that your Holy Spirit will will abound in this place, that you will be here among us, that you will be teaching each one of us individually as well as us, as us as a fellowship, as a community. May we see things together, and Lord, please speak to individual hearts as well. You know what needs to be heard. You know how we each need to be moved. I don't know that, Father. But Jesus, you do. So we invite you here, ask you to... Take control of our time together. And be the Lord here and teach us of your word. In Jesus' name we do pray, amen. Verse 3. Now I'm going to tell you as we walk through this, there is an outline. An amazing outline. Jacob, as he starts to talk with his sons, gives a chronological history. But it's not a chronology of the sons. As a matter of fact, about halfway down, if you're a student of these things, you'll notice that the birth order gets messed up. Usually, as a father would bless his sons, he would do so from oldest to youngest right down the line. But about halfway through this listing, he shifts around. He skips and comes back and moves, and he doesn't stay in order. Why does he do that? Well, amazingly, and again prophetically, what you will see here is the entire story of the people of Israel unfold before our eyes as Jacob goes verse, person by person, verse by verse, in blessing his sons. And it's amazed me, the last couple of weeks, I've just been shaking my head at how incredible God's word is. So let's get into this. Verse 3. Remember, he said, he's. this is what will befall you in the end of days. And he says, listen to Israel, your father. Verse 3, Reuben... You are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength. That phrase, the beginning of my strength, the typical phrase that was often used by Hebrew fathers toward their firstborn sons, you're the beginning of my strength. I remember when we first had Corey, and I knew I was going to have a son. My firstborn was going to be a son. I felt like a real man. I do remember, though, the feeling that I had when Corey was born, and how my best friend, Chris Stevens, guy down in California, when he had his firstborn, it was a girl, and I just laughed. (laughs) Daughter of your strength. Now, I'm, I'm not a chauvinist. Hang with me. Just playing here. But Reuben, you're my firstborn. My mind at the beginning of my strength. You see, when, when you're starting to joke around in Bible study and it's not really going anywhere, you quickly get back to the verse. My mind at the beginning of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And right now, Reuben's feeling pretty good about himself. And Israel says, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed then you defiled it and then almost as an aside to the other brothers he went up to my couch what's going on here verse 4 where he says you are uncontrolled as water that phrase uncontrolled that word is boiling over you're like a tea tea kettle that's sitting on the stove that is just boiling over You have no control. And so, though you were the son of my strength, though you were born in preeminence, though that was what would have been your role, you blew it, Reuben. You blew it. And you are no longer the son of my preeminence. What's the deal here? Forty years earlier, you may recall in the story that Reuben did go up to his father's bed. Just after Rachel died. Reuben decided it was time for him to start taking control of the family. And this was a very pagan thing to do in pagan culture. Oftentimes, the firstborn son would go to the bed of the father and take the father's wife and sleep with her to command control over the family. Now it's me. Now I'm the leader. Now I'm the one. Well, Rachel's died. Jacob's in his sorrow. And Reuben goes up and sleeps with Rachel's maid, one of Jacob's four wives, Bilhah. And his father doesn't say anything. Jacob is quiet about it. He doesn't respond. He doesn't react. He doesn't, you know, ground Reuben. (laughs) He does nothing. And as you read the story, you look at that and think, that's strange. He doesn't do anything. I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He doesn't forget. And when it comes time to bless the boys, Reuben loses the position of firstborn because of his sin. Reuben's sin comes back to bite him, and sin always does. The Bible says very clearly be sure your sin will find you out. And we may think as humans we can hide from it, we can sneak around, we can get away with it, we can pull it off as long as no one sees. Sin itself finds us out. It's not even the, con- the condemnation of the Father, it's sin, it's what it does. And we would be wise to recognize that. First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1 tells us Reuben was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, that's Ephraim and Manasseh, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, that would be Jesus, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph, who was not firstborn? Reuben lost it. Now, Israel the man, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, Reuben, you have lost what you could have been. You will not have preeminence any longer. And prophetically, catch this, watch this, prophetically, Israel the man also is speaking of Israel the people. If you're making an outline of these things, there are nine or ten things we'll, we'll cover in this outline. And the first one is Israel's inception. Israel's inception, when Israel became a nation, their very beginnings, and it is described in the person of Reuben. How so? Almost immediately at the birthing of the nation, they came out of Egypt, they came to Mount Sinai, and what did they do? They committed adultery. Spiritual adultery. In the same way that Reuben went up and took his father's wife, committed adultery. So Israel, when they came out of Egypt, a people saved by God, and this this is mind-boggling to us today. Although we would have done the same thing. To think that this people would be rescued, the ten plagues of Egypt. And then drawn out. And the the whole Red Sea thing. Unbelievable. And then they come to Sinai and they see the fire and and the shaking of the mountain. And they are afraid. They know God's there. But Moses tarries with God up on the mountain quite a while. And the people go after a foreign god, a golden calf. They commit adultery. Just like Reuben now, if you think that might be a bit of a stretch prophetically, listen to this. God's relationship with Israel has always been that of a husband seeking after a whoring wife. From the beginning, Hosea talks about this, chapter 2, verse 1. God is speaking, he says, Say to your brothers, Ami, which means my people, and to your sisters, Ruhama, which means of my compassion. In other words, say to the people of my compassion, that's the Jews, Contend with your mother, contend, for she is not my wife, Then I am not her husband. And let her put away her harlotry from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, or I will strip her naked and expose her as on the day when she was born. PG 13. I will also make her like a wilderness. I will make her like desert land, and I will slay her with thirst. Also, I will have no compassion on her children, because they are the children of harlotry. Talking about the children of Israel. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. Who is she? Who is this woman? It's Israel. They come out of Egypt at their inception. They're a new nation. God going before them. Woohoo! God's with us. We're a people. And they commit adultery. And they blow their firstborn status. Just like Reuben. Look at verse 5. We move on to Simeon. Another name for Simeon. Today you might recognize more the name Shimon. Shimon Perez. Shimon is Simeon. Same name. Simeon and Levi are brothers, their father says. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. And at this point, I think all the brothers are going, is this a blessing or a curse? I'm not feeling real blessed. And down the line, they must be really shaking in their boots. Because in their anger, he says, they slew men. In their self-will, they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. And I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. The key words there, disperse and scatter. In the so-called blessing of Simeon and Levi, there's nothing but condemnation for their self-will. They wanted to do it their way. Do you remember what these boys did at Shechem? A horrible story. Dinah, their sister, is raped by a man named Shechem from Shechem. Shechem of Shechem. And after this rape, Israel, Jacob, does nothing. He's quiet. He's not sure what he's going to do. He's pondering it, whatever, and the sons come in and discover what's happened, and they go ballistic. And then this Shechem has the audacity to come in and say, Hey, I've actually fallen in love with your sister. I want to marry her. Simeon and Levi hatch a plan. Well, that's fine. You... And all the men of your town, Shechem, need to be circumcised like we are circumcised because we, we can't connect with your people unless you're like we are. So if you'll be circumcised, then you can marry our daughter. So Shechem goes back, somehow convinces the men of the town to do this. I don't know how. Again, that's a conversation that would be really fun just to watch how he talked them into that. Guys, let's get circumcised. Excuse me? What are you talking about? But they do And the Bible tells us in the day that they do, Simeon and Levi, not all the sons of Israel, but Simeon and Levi go in with the sword and slay every man in Shechem. A bloodbath. A murderous bloodbath. Because they were self-willed, doing their own thing in rash cruelty, Israel proclaimed that they would become scattered in Israel. Interesting, that's exactly what happened to Simeon and Levi. They became scattered in Israel. Joshua chapter 19 verse 9 tells us, The inheritance of the sons of Simeon was taken from the portion of the sons of Judah. For the share of the sons of Judah was too large for them, so the sons of Simeon received an inheritance in the midst of Judah's inheritance. In other words, in the territory that was given to Judah, they said, and Simeon can have a little bit of land in here too. They didn't even have their own parcel. They were scattered among one of the other tribes. So in a small, short-term way, this prophecy came true. In a bigger way, we see it come true as well. William Barner, in his small but I think really excellent book, Jacob's Dozen, writes the following. He says, the cities within Judah that were assigned to Simeon were all in the arid and barren region known as the Negev. A most inhospitable area for cultivation and the the settled life. This divided existence without a centralized tribal organization was an apt fulfillment of Jacob's blessing. By the way, Jewish tradition also tells us that all poor Jews come out of Simeon. That the poverty finds its roots there. Now Levi on the other hand, so we have Simeon, they didn't even have their own land, they're scattered among Judah. But Levi, Levi never had any land. They also were scattered and dispersed among all Israel. You may recall why. Because they were the priesthood. The priests were not given land. The priests were spread out among all the people. Now, for a moment here, you look at Simeon and Levi. They're both guilty of the same sin. They both get the same curse. They both are scattered among Israel. But one is a a people of poverty and the other one is the priesthood. How does one get poverty and the other one get priesthood? How does that work? How is that fair, we would ask? The answer to that question lies in Exodus chapter 32, which we're not going to get to for several weeks. But I will give you a hint. The same zeal with the sword that got Levi into trouble with Simeon, his brother, in Shechem, that same zeal is what landed his descendants in the priesthood. It's just a zeal that was turned around. Levi's zeal for his sister Dinah In murdering all these guys. Now, the people of Levi later on will have the same kind of passionate zeal, but this zeal will now be turned the right way. It will be a zeal to the Lord. And again, if you want to know more about that, read Exodus 32. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 9 tells us Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers, but the Lord is his inheritance, just as the Lord your God has spoken to him. But what does it say prophetically of Israel the nation? Second thing on our outline, Israel's dispersion. This talks about the dispersion or the diaspora of Israel. It speaks of the same thing. In the same way that Simeon and Levi were dispersed throughout Israel, Israel itself would be dispersed throughout the nation. 722 B.C. Assyria comes down and captures northern Israel. Dispersion. 586 B.C., Babylon captures Judah, more dispersion, and by 70 A.D., Rome took Jerusalem, renaming it Aeolia Capitolina, and the Jews were finally and brutally driven out, scattered, and dispersed for good. That is until May 14, 1948, that all-important date on the calendar, when prophecy came alive in this last generation. When suddenly an amazing and miraculous thing happened. Isaiah 66 verses 8 and 9 speak of this. Can a nation be born in a day? Or shall the Lord bring a people to birth and then not birth that nation? And in this one verse God hints something miraculous. That Israel in one day would boom become a nation again. And the dispersion would at least begin to be at an end. Israel's dispersion But listen Due to the dispersion of Israel in the world There has been both a Simeon and a Levi effect What do you mean by that? The Simeon effect Israel has been kicked around Impoverished in the world Without portion without home That's the Simeon effect And we've seen that happen with the Jews However there's also a Levi effect A priesthood effect Because Israel has been a priest of sorts in the world How so? Paul says it was Israel that brought us to Christ. It was because of Israel that we came to Jesus in the first place. Thus, Israel acted like a priest, a Levite, for you and I. Romans chapter 11, verse 17. Paul writes If some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root, which is Israel, but the root supports you. We have a debt of gratitude to Israel. Because through Israel, not only did God bring Jesus into the world, but through even their hardness of heart, God worked an amazing plan that brought salvation to the Gentiles as well. Israel's dispersion third thing on your outline Israel's salvation this is where it just gets awesome verse 8 Judah Judah your brothers shall praise you your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies your father's son shall bow down to you Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey my son you have gone up he couches he lies down as a lion and as a lion who dares rouse him up And then he says the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine, and his teeth white from milk. And Judah truly did grow to a place of prominence among the brothers. And we saw this, we have talked about this in previous weeks, how you see Judah, he, he's not doing real well early on. He makes some very poor decisions. But ultimately it's Judah, remember, who stands up for Benjamin? It's Judah when all the brothers go before Joseph in Egypt. Judah's the one who says, hey, don't take Benjamin, take me, let it be my life for the boys. I'll become your slave. Let him go home acting just like Jesus acted for us in taking our place. And so Judah, Judah is elevated. He becomes prominent in his father's eyes. And he, by the way, would receive the greatest portion of land in the promised land. And he would be such a great tribal leader historically that when the kingdom split between north and south, Israel in the north, it was Judah, the kingdom of Judah in the south, Because Judah was by far the largest of all the tribes. But prophetically, this speaks of none other than Jesus. Look at verse 8 again. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. And we see a picture of Jesus, the leader. The leader who will lead his people. Who will have his hand on the neck of his enemies. Who will triumph. Jesus, the leader. But verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him, Jesus is not only the leader, he's also the lion. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. In the Revelation, we suddenly recognize, understand that Judah as the lion's wealth, but that's talking about Jesus. He is the lion. And even way back here, as Israel is prophesying, this is Jesus the lion of the tribe of judah verse 10 we see that he's not only leader and lion but he is also lord he is lord the scepter shall not depart from judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of all the people we just saying jesus is lord now the scepter here the scepter the scepter it means rule it means authority, it means lordship. Shiloh, by the way, is from the root word shalom, meaning peace. This Lord will bring peace. And rabbis understood this Shiloh to be a reference to Messiah. Even back prior to Jesus' arrival, ancient writings, details show us that rabbis looked at this and they said, When Shiloh comes, and they believed it so thoroughly and they were so convinced that it literally tore them apart when they thought it didn't happen. The prophecy is that the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. This is fascinating to me, because God gave us a messianic window. Do you realize that according to the Bible, there is only a very short period in history when Messiah could even show up? And if he didn't show up during this time, he would not show up at all. He couldn't show up before the time, and he couldn't show up after the time. If you want to jot this down, this is the Messianic window. It opens sometime before the loss of Jewish rule. Before the Jews lose the right of self-rule, Messiah had to come. Sometime before that rule was lost, and that same window closes when Messiah was prophesied to be cut off. So on the calendar, somewhere between which Israel loses its rule and Messiah is cut off, somewhere in there, in that window, Messiah had to come. Well, how does that work? Let me explain. Josephus, the Jewish historian, records it around 12 A.D., the Roman procurator, Caponius, removed the legal powers of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, including the power of capital punishment. You may recall the story. We've talked about it here before. On that very day, the Babylonian Talmud records that the Sanhedrin put on sackcloth and ashes, and they walked the walls of Jerusalem weeping, saying, Woe to us! Shiloh hasn't come! He hasn't come! When Caponius gave this rule, he said, no longer Sanhedrin, no longer Jewish ruling, ruling council, can you proclaim the death penalty, which to the Jew, going all the way back to the Noahic covenant, the death penalty was the last semblance of rule and authority. Up until that point, the Jews could determine life and death situations. They could, they did have a degree of self-rule, even though there was all the scattering They still had self-rule until Caponius said, no, it's gone. And the rabbis, the Sanhedrin, were so distraught because they were waiting for Shiloh to come, for Messiah to come. And he didn't. And they wept and they moaned. And they failed to recognize that Messiah was sitting in their temple that very day. A 12-year-old boy, astounding the priests. Talking about things he shouldn't have understood. Knowing things no 12 year old boy should possibly know. Shiloh did come before Israel lost its rule. Luke chapter 2 verses 41 through 52 tell us Shiloh was there. He had come. Israel's salvation. Israel's salvation. Prophesied some 16 to 1700 years before this was Jesus. But they missed him. Now this window for Messiah, it had to be opened before that loss of Jewish authority. But it closed, according to Daniel 9.27, it closed when Messiah was cut off and Jerusalem was destroyed. Now, even if you're unsure of Messiah being cut off, even if you want to take that out of the picture, in the Messianic window here, between the time when the Jews lost self-rule, A.D. 12, to A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed, there's your window. Messiah had to come in that period of time. Couldn't come before, couldn't come after, according to the Scripture. If you're going to follow the Bible literally. God narrows the window and places a single individual in that window, a man named Jesus. No one else like him. No one before, no one after. Jesus fits the picture. Truly Jacob, by faith, blessed his sons. And so Jesus is Israel's salvation. He's a leader. He's a lion. He's a Lord. He is also, verses 11 and 12, he's also the landowner. Now this is interesting. The Bible says he ties his fold to the vine. And his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Well, who other than the landowner can bring his colt up and tie it to the wine, to, to the, the grapes? And tie it up right there to the vine? Who can do that? The landowner can. He has every right. He washes his garments in wine. And his robes, look at the picture, his robes in the blood of grapes. The Bible says his eyes are dull. That word is not dull, it's darker than. His eyes are darker than wine. And his teeth are whiter than milk. Darker than wine. Whiter than milk. He is the landowner. He is tying his foal to the vine. Washing his garments in wine. It speaks of Jesus purchasing the property. Owning the land. And it's the language, folks, of redemption. Because this landowner washes his robes in wine-like blood. And Revelation 19.13 says he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. Jesus, Lion, Leader, Lord, Landowner, and he is also, folks, and don't miss this, he is also the Lamb who was slain for the redemption of all people who would come to him. Number four in our list, Israel's exploitation. We have their inception and their dispersion, and their salvation comes. Though they didn't see it, they will, but they didn't. They missed him. But after their salvation came, Israel's exploitation, verse 13, Zebulun will dwell at the seashore, and he shall be a haven for ships, and his flank shall be towards Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the sheepfolds, and when he saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, he bowed his shoulder to bear burdens and became a slave at forced labor. Deuteronomy chapter 33 verses 18 and 19 tell us the following. It says of Zebulun, he said, Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going forth, and rejoice, Issachar, in your tents. They will call peoples to the mountain, and there they will offer righteous sacrifices, for they will draw out of the abundance of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. Zebulun and Issachar, very interesting picture with these two boys, interesting prophetic picture. Zebulun was historically known as maritime merchants. They were, their land allotted to them in the promised land was near the sea. In fact, near a lot of traffic that came through. And so they became a merchant and trading tribe. And prophetically, as we have seen in past studies, the Jewish people have been blessed in their exploitation of the world financially and otherwise. God has continued to provide for Israel. Who are some of the greatest financiers even today in the world? The Jewish people who, one of the reasons Hitler was so angry and so anti-Jew, was because of how much wealth they held in his country. God took care of them. Zebulun is a picture of that blessing, of how they were able to go out, and even as a dispersed people, they were able to exploit the world financially and otherwise. Zebulun's blessing in their tribe, interestingly, foreshadows this very aspect of Jewish history. Issachar, on the other hand, the wild donkey is a tribe who is literally, the scriptures say, between lying down between the sheepfolds. That word sheepfolds, in verse 14, is actually saddlebags. Lying down between two saddlebags, or two burdens. It's interesting that Issachar, as their tribe, their land was between two mountains. Mount Tabor to the north and Mount Gilboa to the south. But Issachar is also a true picture, prophetically, of Israel and how they were exploited by the world, not their exploitation of the world as we see in Zebulun, but how they are exploited by the world, this picture of a strong, stubborn, unyielding donkey squished between two burdens. What two burdens? I'll suggest a couple, and this is just my thoughts on it. One burden is the burden of human persecution, because from Jerusalem's fall to the horrors of Treblinka to Auschwitz, the Jews have been the most maligned and tortured people in all of history. There has never been a people group so gunned after, so gunned for as the Jewish people. No people group has been that persecuted. They should have ceased to exist as a nation, as a people, long ago. And one of the burdens they had had to deal with, all the way really from the Assyrian captivity of 722 forward, all that way, was the burden of human persecution. But they also have another burden. And if you will, it's the burden of holy purpose. The burden? Yeah. Hear me on this, folks. That to follow after God, to be His people, guarantees a heavy weight. Well, didn't Jesus say, Come to me and my yoke is light and my burden is easy? Yes, he did. And what's amazing is, as you walk with Jesus, the heavier the persecution, the more intense, the greater the weight the world tries to put on you, the lighter it seems. As long as your eyes are fixed on the Lord. As long as you're walking in Jesus. But Israel, like a donkey, between these two burdens, the burden of human persecution and, and holy purpose. They had a purpose. They were called by God. They were supposed to be God's people. And that's a hard burden to bear. It's not easy to carry. Genesis chapter 32 verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold they are an obstinate people. Donkey. The wild donkey of Israel. Obstinate. They won't move when I want them to move. They won't follow when I want them to follow. Acts chapter 7 verse 51. Stephen said, you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and your ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. And I'm reminded of Tevye in the movie Fiddler on the Roof, the musical, and how he said, Lord, we know that we are your chosen people, but couldn't you just choose someone else for a change? The burden of human persecution and holy purpose. And so the people of Israel were exploited Israel's exploitation that we see in Zebulun and Issachar and following Israel's oversight of their salvation their dispersion became intense but this strong donkey this strong donkey has indeed continued not only to prosper but also to undergo forced labor now things in our outline turn to the future verse 16 and this is a little stunning Dan Dan shall judge his people As one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way. A horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels. So that his rider falls backward. Now stop right there for a moment. Israel says one more thing. It doesn't seem to fit. You'll understand why. Well, verse 18 he says, For your salvation I wait, O Lord, for your salvation. But Dan is this serpent. He's a snake. What does the Bible speak of any time we see serpent or snake? It's a picture of Satan. It's a picture of the enemy, the evil one. Dan? Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path. What is this talking about? Number five in our outline, Israel's poison. Israel's poison. A snake will come from Dan. Now something just to know historically, Dan has always been the worst of the tribes when it comes to idolatry in their portion in the promised land they were the furthest north and they were closest to the pagan peoples and they were the most overcome by idolatry they worse than any other tribe and you see this time and time again in scripture went after idols sought after idols even in the place of Dan had idols set up for worship all over the place and it's interesting that this most idolatrous of tribes is completely left out of the tribal genealogies in 1st Chronicles 2 2-10. 2-10. Dan is not even mentioned, this serpent in the way, this horned snake. And rabbis to this day, check this out, rabbis to this day believe that out of the tribe of Dan will come a false messiah. We would call him Antichrist. This is one reason why there are those who believe, and I tend to lean this way But Antichrist, when he comes on the scene, may actually have Jewish blood. He may actually come out of tracing the lineage all the way back, if you could do it, to the tribe of Dan. This snake, this horned snake in the path. you saying that Antichrist might be a Jew? Well, I thought he was supposed to be of European and Roman descent. Absolutely. Would you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 11? Daniel chapter 11, the book of Daniel, the revelation of the Old Testament, an amazing, amazing book. I want you to see this with your own eyes, these three verses, Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. Daniel is writing down an amazing and exhausting A very troubling prophecy that the Lord gives him. And he says, and he's talking about here Antichrist. I don't have time to go into why. I can explain it another time if you'd like to talk about it. Or just go back and study Daniel 11 for yourself. And I believe you'll see these things. But verse 36 of Daniel 11. He's writing, he says, Then the king, speaking of Antichrist, Will do as he pleases. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. And will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. And he will prosper until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. Verse 37. Listen to this. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Or for the desire of women nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a god of fortresses. That literally is military might or armaments. He will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. There it is again, a god of his fathers. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. Now, if you look back at verse 36 again, he will... Prosper until the indignation is finished. I'm sorry, verse 37. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women. There may be homosexual tendencies in Antichrist. But the fact that he shows no regard for the gods of his fathers, that is a phrase used for Jews. That is a typical phrase in the Old Testament that speaks of the God of my fathers. What fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The God of my father, Joseph. And yet here, as Daniel prophesies of Antichrist, he speaks that Antichrist shows no regard for the God of his fathers. Let me give you, again, this is my opinion, but Antichrist, like Hitler, may very well have Jewish blood flowing through his veins. Did you know Hitler was part Jewish? And there's evidence to believe that Jewish blood may be out of the tribe that, this, this, uh, that Antichrist may come out of the tribe of Dan. It fascinates me that at this point in the prophetic blessing, Israel stops. It's as if he looks away from all of his sons, and in verse 18 he says, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. This is a man on his deathbed. He doesn't have to wait long. Like one of the cards I got for my birthday this week. <laughs> that said, For your birthday, a special message from the Lord. And you open it up and it says, See you soon. <laughs> Israel is dying here. He is going to see the Lord. He's waiting for his salvation of the Lord, but he still cries out, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. Why does he say it here? I think Israel is a little upset at this prophecy of Dan. Stirred up something inside of him as a prophet, and oftentimes you see this the prophets will get wasted in giving their prophecies. Daniel ended up on his couch several times after giving his prophecies because it was such a heavy burden for him to bear. And here, Israel cries out, For your salvation I wait, O Lord. For your salvation. You know what that word salvation is in the Greek? I mean in the Hebrew? Are you ready for this? Yeshua. Yeshua. For Yeshua I wait, O Lord. It's the Hebrew name, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. For Jesus I wait, he cries out. As if on the one hand he's talking about Antichrist, and then suddenly he cries out in his spirit, For Jesus Christ, I wait. O Lord. For Jesus I wait. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2. Behold, God is my Yeshua. Salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and song, and He has become my Yeshua. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of Yeshua, who is the water of life but Jesus Himself. And Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, Gabriel comes to Joseph and he says, Hey, don't be afraid to marry Mary, (laughs) because she will bear a son, and you will call His name Yeshua. Why Yeshua? Why Jesus? Because it means salvation. God saves. And he will, Gabriel said, save his people from their sins. It was no accident that God chose the name Yeshua for his son. Oh, Rick, Jesus was a common name. A lot of people were named Jesus. A lot of Joshua's out there in Israel. Oh, sure there were. But it's no mistake that Messiah himself was named Jesus. Because what more fitting name for the Son of God Who is our salvation. Number six on our list. We come now after Israel's poison. To Israel's great tribulation. Verse 19. Verse 19 tells us. As for Gad. Raiders shall raid him. But he will raid at their heels. Gad speaks of Israel's persecution in the tribulation. But when it's all said and done. They will stand for the Lord. Israel will finally stand up. They will finally wake up. Part of the reason for the tribulation spoken of in chapters 6 through 19 of Revelation is to wake up the Jew. When the church is pulled out, raptured, taken away, protected, given the grace promised, the Jewish people on earth, they will be looking, as many people will at that time, for a Savior, someone to bring peace, someone to bring the solution. And along comes Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 tells us, along comes this man of peace who says, I've got the solution. Sign this covenant with me, a seven-year covenant of peace. Daniel says halfway through that seven-year covenant of peace, he will break the covenant and he will set himself up as God in the temple. Apparently, part of that covenant is the rebuilding of the temple. And as setting himself up, when he does that in the temple, it's called the abomination of desolation. The Jewish people will get it. They will realize that this Antichrist was not their Messiah at all. And many of them, at least a third of Israel at that time, will turn to the Lord and will be saved. Verse 20 tells us, As for Asher, his food shall be rich, and he will yield royal dainties. Asher, a picture of Israel's provision. In the tribulation, as much as Gad is a picture of persecution, now Asher is a picture of provision. Listen again, Asher has food that will be be rich, and he will yield royal dainties, rich food, real truth from the Lord. Because Israel will finally believe in their salvation during that tribulation period, they will be fed, folks, on the true word of God, who is Jesus. And any time you feed on the word, the result is sweet food. The result is fruit. Verse 21 tells us Naphtali is a doe let loose. He gives beautiful words. Naphtali is Israel's proclamation in tribulation. So we see Gad as Israel's persecution, Asher is as Israel's provision, and now Naphtali, Israel's proclamation. Revelation chapter 7 describes the sealing and letting loose of 144,000 Jewish evangelists into the world. Proclaiming the truth. For you see, our God of mercy, when he pulls the church out, is not done being a God of mercy, though he will at the same time be God of wrath. Because even during the tribulation, this just blew my mind when I caught this. Even during this time when he is judging the world with fierce and horrific judgments, he is still holding out the hand of salvation. Still saying, if you turn to me now, you can still be saved. He's sending out 144,000 Jewish evangelists to preach the truth, to preach the word. And Romans 10.14 tells us, How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Naphtali is a doe let loose giving beautiful words. Proclaiming the truth. Of Jesus. Habakkuk 319, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. The Lord God is my strength. He has made my feet like hinds' feet, that is, the feet of a deer. And He makes me to walk on my high places. So, in this time, this is Israel, the picture of Israel's tribulation. And then we come to verse 22 and we begin to see Israel's restoration. Israel's restoration. Verse 22 tells us, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring, its branches run over a wall. And the archers bitterly attacked him and shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile. From the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the rock of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, from the God of your Father who helps you, and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills may they be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Who is the one distinguished among his brothers? It's not Joseph. It's Jesus. Jesus, Who is the one of all Jewish people, for in fact Jesus was born a Jew, of all of his Jewish brothers, whose name is above all names, who is most distinguished, who is exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's none other than Jesus. Now Joseph, Joseph himself was a fruitful bough. Of course that word bow is literally son. He was a fruitful son. You know the story of Joseph. He was unjustly attacked. He was unfairly harassed. But his faith remained firm in the Lord, and God did a mighty work through Joseph, saving his entire family miraculously. And not only saving the family of Jacob, but also the entire world at that time. Genesis chapter 41 verse 52, as Joseph thanked God for his son Ephraim, Joseph himself said, God has made me fruitful, a fruitful son in the land of my affliction. And Joseph was fruitful through Ephraim, whose name means fruitful, and he was fruitful through Manasseh, whose name means forgetful. You may recall when we saw that, that Manasseh's name, forgetful, because Joseph said, God made me forget all of my troubles. He does that. He does that. The more we focus on Jesus, the less we focus on our problems, and the more content we tend to be. The more we focus on our problems, the less we focus on Jesus, and the more stressed out and troubled we are. Joseph knew how to look to the Lord and was forgetful of his problems. But who again is Joseph a picture of in our study? He's Jesus. We've seen over and over and over how Joseph's life parallels. As a matter of fact, if you go back through Joseph's life and just start verse by verse picking through, you will find some 60 to 80 references that could be equally speaking about Jesus. More than just about any Old Testament character, Joseph appears to be an amazing type of Jesus himself. And Joseph's blessing here speaks of Jesus' return and Israel's restoration and the Lord's reign of peace in that time called the millennium. And mark this, my friends, the millennium will be a time of both sweet fruitfulness and gracious forgetfulness. I long for that kind of forgetfulness. Not the kind of forgetfulness that happens when you get to a certain age and you can't remember things. The Bible tells us that God promises that the former things will no longer be remembered. I can't wait, because there are many things I'd like to forget. sin in my life, the things I've done in my life, that though I know I'm forgiven for, they still still haunt me. Satan still brings them up. He still taps me on the shoulder. Remember the time you... Oh, you remember that just yesterday when you... And we go... And God says, you're not going to remember any of that All you're going to remember is Jesus loves you. And that's going to be awesome in the millennium. Verse 27. And this is interesting now. We've spoken of Israel's restoration. Now we see Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he devours the prey. And in the evening he divides the spoil. And Benjamin speaks of Israel's celebration. Israel's celebration. Now historically... Historically, the tribe of Benjamin was a rough and ravenous tribe, a wolf that tears. Israel's first king, King Saul, was of the tribe of Benjamin, and he was a ravenous wolf, wasn't he? This was a man who was uncontrolled and and was an angry and ravenous man. And one of the church's earliest ravenous persecutors was also a man named Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. His name later was turned to Paul, but man, when he was Saul, he he was like a wolf that tears. He wanted to tear the church apart until God got a hold of him and showed him what grace was all about. And Paul wanted to tear sin apart with the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But prophetically... Benjamin's blessing is Israel's celebration because it's described as a great feast. A feast that begins in the morning as the prey is devoured and in the evening the the spoil is divided. A devouring of a great feast and a dividing of spoil, it pictures great provision and it pictures victorious plunder. In the commentary in the Old Testament, Delitz writes, "Morning and evening together suggest the idea of incessant and victorious capture of booty." Not the kind of booty the uh, guys sing about today. <laughs> Isaiah 65 verse 13. <laughs> Isaiah 65 13. Listen carefully to this contrast of the judged and the saved. The judged and the saved. God says, therefore, behold, my servants will eat the saved. And then he says, but you, the judged, will be hungry. Behold, my servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cry out with a heavy heart, and you will wail with a broken spirit. You will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord God will slay you. But my servants will be called by another name, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten as we said before, because they are hidden from my sight. When Jesus comes, the second time, there will be a victorious feast and Israel will finally get their spoiled. God is not through with the Jew. He's not done with Israel. Gang, there are those who would prey on Israel in the world today. And the reality is the Bible tells us they will become Israel's prey. John Corson put it this way, he said there are two groups of people in this world, those who pray on Israel and those who pray for Israel. And mark these words, those who pray on Israel will be torn apart as by a ravenous wolf. But those who pray for Israel will be blessed. Psalm 122 verse 6, pray, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they who prosper, may they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. And we read a verse like that and think, impossible. At least as long as Yasser, that's my baby, is still alive. As long as the Palestinian conflict is there, as long as terrorism reigns and runs rampant in this world, how could there possibly be peace in Jerusalem? David said, Inspired by the Spirit, pray for it. Pray for it. And watch for it. Because there will be peace in Jerusalem. Verse 8 of Psalm 122. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. I'm not going to pray on Israel. I will pray for Israel. Because God is not through with the Jew. And gang, Israel, the man, has just taken us through the entire history, the entire prophecy of God's plan for his people, Israel. Look at verse 28. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone, with the blessing appropriate to him. And the blessings were. Each one of these boys lived out the blessing. Each one of their tribes acted out these blessings. Historically, the parallels are are amazing, astounding. But the blessings are appropriate also to the history of Israel, as we've seen just a little bit of tonight. Verse 29, then he charged them and he said to them, I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought along with the field from Ephraim the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah. And there they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah. And there I buried Leah. You know, just a quick aside. It's interesting that after all of the problems that Jacob had with Leah weak eyed Leah the second choice the one he didn't choose at all the wife he ended up with but he wanted Rachel for all of those problems Rachel ends up buried in Bethlehem and when Jacob dies he is laid to rest beside Leah and I think in there somewhere there is a great blessing from God on this woman Leah who got to lay and stay there with Jacob In the cave in Machpelah. Verse 32, the field in the cave that is in it, he said, purchased from the sons of Heth. Verse 33, when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last. And he was gathered to his people. As Jacob delivers his farewell address and dies, I am struck by the blessing of one son in particular. As he goes through and talks to all 12 of these boys, there is one that stands out to me, one son who rose above all the others. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. One Jewish boy who stands out among all above all the others Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 tells us I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn the people of Israel will see Jesus again and when they do, they will mourn, they will weep, and it will be a, a bitter mixture of joy at their seeing their salvation and sorrow that they didn't see him the first time around. But Paul says the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. And truly. Truly, Jesus is fairer today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we stand in awe before you. As we see that as Jacob, as Israel, bless these twelve sons, that the greatest blessing is that which describes and defines and details the life of Jesus. of you, Lord. And we're so struck, again, over and over and over as we study through these Old Testament passages that we just keep seeing Jesus everywhere. That He truly does bring all things together. Lord, that You are the consummation of everything. That in You, Jesus, as Paul said, all things hold together. And everything is made through You and for You. Nothing, Lord, has been made without You. All things come back to You. And Jesus, as we are witnesses, eyewitnesses here tonight of Israel's blessing to his sons, as we're flies on the wall watching all this take place, may we understand the fulfillment of all of these prophecies in Jesus. And may we translate that, Lord, by your Spirit into our own lives. That the summation of all things in our lives would point to Jesus. That our decisions every day would would draw us to Jesus. That, that our, father, our our passions would lead us to Jesus. Our relationships would lift us closer to Jesus. And that the very words of our mouths would speak of Jesus day in and day out, right and left. That we would be proclaimers of the gospel and bringing the good news to such a lost world. Father, my heart breaks for the father of one of our brothers here in the fellowship who is dying of liver cancer. And who does not know you. And Jesus, I pray for him right now. Would you, in these waning days of Dick's life, would you capture him, please, Father? Would you give Harlan the right words to speak and and the tenderness but also the boldness to look directly into his father's eyes? May Harlan have the boldness of remembering and recognizing the thief on the cross and may his father, Lord be willing to accept grace, even in this eleventh hour. God, this is but one situation I'm aware of in a world that is full of people every day whose next step is their last. And it is my prayer that as we come in contact with people speaking and breathing out the name of Jesus, that their last breath here would be their first breath in heaven. And that we could be instruments of yours to bring the name of Jesus into every life we come in contact with. Even as Jacob brings Yeshua, salvation, into the middle of the blessing of his sons. Oh, God bless us tonight. Thank you so much for your love. And I pray these things we would take with us. Write them on our hearts. Engrave them, Father, on our souls. And bring us home soon. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.